The Athletic. And welcome along to a Ramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. After a very short break, I, Tim Sylvie, am back with my two teammates for some more great chat about your favourite sport. Starting on the softs and hoping for a quick getaway, it's racing driver and broadcaster Alex Brundle. And doing a long opening stint on the hards, it's the virtual stat man himself, Sean Kelly. Alex, first to you, great to chat again. How are you keeping? Very well, thank you. Really enjoyed the Spanish Grand Prix. I know it's split opinion, but uh, I really enjoyed it and looking forward to Le Mans next week as well, uh, that endurance test of motorsport. And Sean, last time we spoke, you were in Monaco. We find you somewhere else now. Where in the world are you? I am currently at Heathrow Airport, midway on my way home back to California from having done an epic uh, seven week stint on the road Azerbaijan, Miami, Imola that never was Monaco and now Spain um, and now finally on my way home and attracting quite a crowd I can say in the executive lounge as they're all wondering why I'm enunciating so clearly on what is apparently a, a normal call <laughs> Oh I love it um, Well Sean and Alex will be bringing you their insights in their respective stat and performance focuses. Plus, we'll be hearing from a familiar voice from F1 in our Aramco Focus. So, go get yourself comfy as we head into focus number one. Right, we're going to kickstart things on today's episode with Alex's performance focus. In previous episodes, you've spoken about driver adaptability, how red flag delays can affect mentality and even driver burnout. And I'd thoroughly recommend to our listeners that you check out those episodes if you haven't already. But Alex, what topic did you want to dive into today? Well, the Spanish Grand Prix was strategically interesting. There was a lot of wheel-to-wheel action, some penalties dished out as well. And I found it interesting uh, the incredible amount of radio chatter that was going on between drivers and teams uh, as with so many as with almost every grand prix great for us the fans great for us the commentators we can hear what the teams and the drivers are thinking and feeling is it though good for the drivers is it good for their performance to be communicating so much with the team or does it indeed detract from their performance uh, by doing so well let's get into that a bit more so driver radio something that's been adapted over the years in many ways sometimes even being banned between driver and team for certain parts of it in 2023 the radio chatter is pretty frequent as we see on the broadcast but is it too much well alone and unaided is the uh, is the magic regulation of course the, the the driver must drive alone and unaided and um, we have had periods of formula one where for example before the start process team to uh, driver communication has been banned completely there are still stipulations in place around what teams and drivers are allowed to talk about for the spectacle i think we've got the balance right i was interested in several elements of the grand prix the first of which i'd like to raise george russell sits in a strategically similar place on a two-stopper to lewis hamilton they eventually split the compounds in the middle of the race i've heard several races now where he basically has been almost in negotiation with mercedes over the strategic superiority or or indeed being allowed 
um, to to attack his teammate or move past his teammate or not have his teammate move past him. And I do wonder if Mercedes would be better to sit them down and agree those priorities pre-race. Very interesting uh, comment I, I happened to watch on, on F1 TV this weekend, uh, the Grand Prix. Very interesting uh, comment from David Coulthard in commentary who said, I never did a faster lap with the radio channel open and I must mirror that as well. I do wonder if George would get a better result with less negotiation and more apexes. Yeah, but but I suppose it can be beneficial as well. Could, could you argue the other side of the coin that radio chats between driver and engineer sometimes could help performance? There are two elements, uh, uh, and both uh, are between uh, Guan Zhou and, uh, and Yuki Tsunoda, actually. Um, the, the first of which, uh, we see a lot of this sort of appealing to the umpire going on and we and, and i often roll eyes at that in the commentary box i must admit uh, the the incident i'm talking about here is actually the one where guan Yuzhou, uh, gets down the inside of, of yuki sonoda uh, and then uh, sorry the, the other way around yuki sonoda gets down the inside of guan Yuzhou, ends up pushing um guan Yuzhou wide um, uh, he, he then appeals to the race director over the radio. Lo and behold, a five-second penalty for Yuki Tsunoda puts Joe in in the point, puts Yuki Tsunoda down in 12th out of the point. Now, of course, the stewards will tell you. Of course, the stewards will say it doesn't matter what the driver says over the radio. It doesn't matter what the team say over their communication tools with us. We're going to make an impartial decision. However... They're watching the same broadcast as everyone else. When there is a narrative that forms, it you know there's a reason why court cases held in very media-heavy environments are moved to other environments because it's seen to be prejudicial to the case. We're all human beings. We can't help but be influenced by the communication that's going on. In that instance, you may think that for Joe, it would be better to uh, not have that communication with the team for his own performance, but actually it proved uh, the the opposite was, uh, was the case. Second point, Yuki Tsunoda getting caught late on in the race by, uh, I think it was one of the Hasses, ends up having a communication with his ra- with his engineer over the radio. The engineer asks him, do you need more rotation or more, more stability? Do you need, basically, more understeer or more oversteer? Yuki takes the opposite track. Leave me alone. Shut up. Let me drive in, in his inimitable style. And then, of course, loses the position. Would he have been better to lose a few tenths on that lap, listen in to what his engineer had to say about the settings he might change, diff mid, diff entry, to try and cure the little bit of a uh, little bit of understeer he was suffering with, and then move on through his race. So interesting, the balance of communication and how it can be beneficial or otherwise to the drivers. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, actually, when you start to think about how it could be beneficial. I suppose it's the equivalent in football of surrounding the referee and, and convincing him to make a decision or go to VAR or something and then getting getting your goal. But from your perspective as a driver, having experienced the radio in your ear, for you personally, does it take away your focus or do you enjoy that interaction with an engineer? Oh, it definitely takes away focus. I mean, uh, it's Kimi Raikkonen who is famous for uh, for not wanting his engineer to talk to him in the fast corners. And I, I've always been very similar, uh, where you're you're focused in. 
sometimes your your mind is so focused. I think we saw uh, an incident like this a little bit for George Russell, actually, in qualifying, uh, where he ended up moving across on his teammate, Lewis Hamilton. You're in the zone. I think one of the reasons why he's earned this uh, reputation as Mr. Saturday is he's brilliant at getting himself so incredibly focused in the tunnel on a qualifying lap that actually... As has been clear a couple of times now through his career, he's not overbearingly focused on other things that are going on around him. All he's thinking about is his technique, the qualifying lap and the corners. And sometimes when your engineer gets in touch with you unexpectedly in a braking zone or in a fast corner, it pierces that absolute focus. Kind of like when you're uh, reading a very involved document or a book and someone bursts in to the room it shocks you and surprises you it's a little bit like that you can have that moment of what is that your brain goes into fight or flight and tries to decide what it is that's trying to communicate with you that can cost you a lot of focus equally if you ask for some information and there's a little bit of a misunderstanding and you don't get the information you need then it could be incredibly frustrating for a driver and your mind can move away from the tasking hand towards the frustration of not getting the information, which might have been slightly extraneous information anyway, but your mind's gone off down that path. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a balancing act, isn't it? And, and perhaps, you know, something that drivers need to train themselves to do, which takes me down another tangent, probably into a, a driver brain performance training and so on. Uh, one for another day. Um, now, the person on the other end of the radio is often, more often than not, the driver's engineer. How hard is it to get that chemistry? And I guess when you find it, you don't really want to let that person go, even if you change teams. The biggest difference are in engineering talent I've experienced in my sort of 12-ish years of endurance racing um, has been their radio demeanour. Um, some are excellent, some are terrible, and I think you just can't learn it. Um, it you know, anyone, well, anybody with, with the appropriate skills and work ethic and so on, these incredibly talented people, but can go to engineering school and learn what the roll bars do and learn the communication, you know, learn the combination of setup items and come up with those ideas. And that stuff is over in sort of the, the engineer's sphere. What you can't do is learn to keep composure in that moment when the driver, particularly a driver like Yuki Tsunoda or a driver a bit like Max Verstappen, actually, are having a little bit of a moment in the car. It's your job then to take the steam because he's the one sitting in the 200 mile an hour missile and you're the one sitting on the pit wall with some screens in front of you. You're in the position, in my view, as the engineer to take the steam out of that communication. And some of them, particularly those who make it through to Formula One, do it brilliantly. Um, and it is a massive skill to be able to convey information, but also absorb the extraneous, how many times do we hear it over a weekend? Talk about that afterwards. Let's stay focused on the plan. Let's stay focused on the, we've got more information than you, mate. Let's stay focused on what you need to do. Uh, all of that kind of stuff is just absolute gold for a race car driver uh, in, in, in the heat battle. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
Now, one of the things that's always perplexed me, and I don't know whether you'll know the answer to this, but you you listen to the on the broadcast the um, the exchanges between driver and the pit wall and telemetry bay and so on, and it always sounds like they're they're dialing in from 1990. Like it's not a terribly clear line. It's not a great radio system. Why is that? Is do they just don't care? As long as you, I can hear you, it's fine. But you would have thought it would be absolutely crystal clear with all the tech that they've got in the sport. There are a couple of reasons for that. The first one is weight. Uh, clearer radio systems are very heavy, which is why um, I-, I was perplexed by this. And I couldn't understand why whenever I got in a GT car, the radio system was great. And whenever I got in a prototype car uh, or-, or a single seater car, the radio system was terrible. Until I asked an engineer once and they said a very clear radio system is extremely heavy, um, which gives you a-, a feel for one of those reasons. The other reason is best laid plans. You go on a test day, those radio systems are beautiful, crystal clear. They're lovely. All of a sudden, you invite the broadcasters, the fans. They're taking pictures. They're Twittergramming into the ether. They are connecting. They're ringing their mum to tell them how great it is down there at turn one. They are, you know, and so on and so forth. There are so many famous stories about cross wires giving uh, much more with the older analog radio systems most of the radio systems by the way now are digital um crossed wires either getting for example at donnington park the flight path of the uh, planes heading into east midlands airport that's a magic one or orders for catering and so on in their ears there's so much traffic going through the airwaves around a racetrack that actually those radio systems are working very hard indeed and that's why it can be um it can be very difficult so many times throughout an endurance race weekend you'll have the whole team of course when the driver speaks um in any in any race car team they have full full radio priority over everything so their radio come creaming over the top come smashing over the top of everything else um so the amount of times you'll hear the lead engineer ask across the garage did anybody get that um it is incredible um and that's why but those two elements weight and uh, heavy airwaves thank you for clearing that up for me it's been bothering me for a while now how much of this is about entertainment and 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 the people watching at home because it's we love the radio you know they 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 type it out on screen we love hearing about it all the commentators go quiet whenever it comes in how much of it is about the broadcast yeah quite a lot i think i mean you formula one it's it's a way in which formula one becomes its own thing um and it's a way in which drivers for example fernando alonso is the perfect example of this lewis hamilton is another perfect example the old heads who've been around the sport for a while know that they can not necessarily entertain i would go more in the direction of manipulate the the action the commentary the uh, general reporting of the race to try to make sure that their narrative that their plight in some way is is heard or to try to make sure that their efforts are well received and you know management of information is a huge part of any job role it's a huge part of any uh work environment or any industry and just as as f1 is any other industry compressed 
into a very sharp, very aggressive, very momentary Grand Prix, those communications, that management of information happens in the moment, in a split second. So something, you know, that an industry executive might look to communicate over two months, a Formula One driver is going to communicate over three tenths of a second by going, my teammate's slower than me, you know, and so on. And I think that's an important part of the game. And other drivers out there, you mentioned a couple there, like Alonso, who sort of kind of knows what he's doing while he's building his narrative as he goes round. But do some drivers maybe rely on it more than others? And, and are there some that you can call out for us who just get a little bit punchy with their engineers every now and again? You know, it, it's really interesting because uh, th- there are bits of a couple of bits of radio that came out over the weekend. You know, Yuki's bit, and then there's another bit that came out not related to, to Formula One actually um, that spread across uh, online from from Dan Tictum, the Formula E driver, who uh, in um, in commentary for Formula Two. I really, I really enjoyed his punchiness over the radio. Actually, I know it's to the distaste of, of, of some of the fan base. Having been in the car and and been around racing, I immediately forgive those radio outbursts. And it's a massive difference between people who've been in racing and and those who uh, who come and watch racing. Um, and, and and enjoy racing but haven't been in the environment of being on the end of one of those radio systems and stood in the paddock and felt the pressure cooker um people watching at home and i can imagine this fully will watch a radio outburst like comes out of yuki Sonoda and compare it to the kind of radio that comes out of lewis hamilton and go man that guy's unhinged he how, how are they letting him you know uh, behind the wheel of behind the wheel of that formula one car but trust me we've all been there and engineers will immediately just filter that out they're full of adrenaline they're going 150 miles an hour uh, uh, there have been multiple occasions uh, the one I the one that initially jumps to mind is uh, is Sebastian Vettel a few years back um, basically defending Lewis Hamilton for some comments that he made uh, over the radio system uh, and saying along the lines of and I completely agree with him um, you know I'm pretty sure when a football player gets a red or a yellow card everything that comes out of his mouth is not necessarily something he'd like to say in front of his grandmother, but that's the nature. That's the nature of sport. Um, so there's no one you can really call out. I, I, I love to hear their emotion over the radio. The teams don't care. The only thing they care about is what happens on the timing screen. And if he has to scream and shout and, and yell over the radio to achieve it, then that's his process. Leave him to it. And presumably, you've always been very polite and, and civil on the radio, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. There are an undisclosed team gave me a fake radio button to press once. Uh, so I, so I, anything, anything, anything you, uh, anything you want to say that we don't want to hear, press this one instead of that one. Um, but you know, it's it, it's part of the process. All drivers do it, um, and what it does do, and what you have to be aware of as a driver is there are there are untrained ears listening and if you have people on the end of those radio channels listening you need to be careful about how you're coming across but trust me if you're getting the job done the teams do not care now sometimes you hear drivers on the radio um 
literally uh, commentating their lap, saying they might have seen something on a timing screen as they drive past it, or I don't know, you know, hearing something in the garage, which has happened of late. Now, does this highlight that uh, these guys are either really, really good at multitasking, or is there a danger that it gives the impression these cars are not that hard to drive at 150 miles an hour going around a corner? Yeah, I think it's it's senses heightened. I mean, uh, I'm happy for you to imply they're not that difficult to drive. <laughs> I think it's, uh, I don't. I don't think. I don't think we're going to go there. Um, the uh, I think it's senses heightened. I remember Taya Pocher. I think it was in Bahrain Formula Two race this year. Uh, saying, "Oh, oh, that was a that was a great battle I saw in the midfield while he was out front winning the race." You do look at the timing screens and try and and try and work out where you are as a driver. You're looking for any possible information, and there is some downtime. You know, whatever race car you're in on the straight, Barcelona is actually a really great example for this. And I hate the circuit for this. It's one of the circuits with an old school timing tower. Cota is another one. So of course. What do you do uh, as you're screaming up to the line uh, to finish your qualifying lap, but glare at the timing tower to see, of course, where you're going to pop up because you want the instant feedback. And in some ways, that's beneficial as well. What you've done, actually, is saved yourself a radio transmission that asks the team, where am I? Then the team have to go, where is he? Then the team have to tell you where you are. Then you have to acknowledge. So actually... If you can garner that information by glancing up at the timing tower, then that's great. Um, I, I do think that there is a there can be a little bit too much of that. Um, but, you know, Formula One drivers are fighter pilots. They are built, they are coached to gather information in a way which uh, is incredibly effective and efficient. And it and it must be said that once you get used to that amount of information coming in, you can you can have more. You can have more uh, and figure out how the race is going in the background. I absolutely don't think that those cars are easy to drive. By the way, just before I get slammed on Twitter, now it's around this point of the show that I usually remind our listeners that if you want to comment on anything Alex, Sean, and myself have to say, you can drop us a line on social media using the hashtag f one focus And Brian, one of our listeners, did just that on Twitter. And actually, Alex, his comment is perfect for what we're talking about today. He asked, "Why are all driver engineer communications in English when English isn't the native language of so much of the F1?" grid care to answer yeah because the grids and teams are multinational so it might not be the native language of so many of the drivers on the grid uh but in general over the over the full field it is the biggest native language of most of the teams we have heard in the past ferrari for example talking over the radio in their own native language of Italian. And I am reticent to be quoted on this, but I believe there was a request for them to speak in English so that the stewards and race direction uh, could understand them. Uh, It's generally accepted, indeed, in aviation terms, uh, when flying around Europe, there is a lot of there is a lot of English spoken over those radios as well. Um, I think it's just taken as a centre point language between most of the personnel who are in the F1 paddock. Um, but 
indeed, we have seen teams speak in their own language. Um, I know that Ligier, um, uh, when uh, my father drove for them, used to speak in French over the radio and it used to cause Mark Blundell uh, rather rather an issue. So there are teams that have spoken in their native language, but in general, for most of the teams who are multinational in nature, uh, English is chosen as the centre point language uh, for those comps. Brian, I hope that answers your question. Um, thank you for sending that in. Please do keep sending in the questions. We love to hear from you. Well, as ever, Alex, you've taken a subject I thought I knew about and made me think about it in a new light. So thank you for that. Right, now it's time to get settled in for Sean's stat focus. Sean, what's jumped out from your databases today? Well, I mean, there's plenty of stuff concerning Max Verstappen's current dominance of the Formula One sphere. Um, but one of the most obscure ones, and one of the ones that didn't get a lot of real traffic in social media world, was that his win in the Monaco Grand Prix was the 200th for a car bearing the number one plate. Uh, we don't often talk about wins by individual numbers. It's not something we go into in much detail, but that was the 200th win for car number one. It is more than any other number in history. Now, before we dive deeper into car numbers, Sean, 1973 seems to have been an important year for numbers more generally in Formula One. Tell us why. Well, 1973 was effectively the year that Formula One entered the modern era. Um, up until then, it had all been a little bit wild west with everybody, every organizer doing a different thing and so forth. I mean, car number one wasn't allocated to the world champion in the 50s and the 60s by right. That didn't start happening until 1973. It, at the 1973 Belgian Grand Prix, that was when standard numbering came into force, where drivers and teams had numbers throughout a season. It was a season of revolution. It was also the year where formation laps were mandated and also the uniform adoption of the two by two starting grid that we used to now. No longer do we have three cars on the front row at certain races. Now this numbering system, the British Grand Prix organizers in the 1960s had attempted to follow a more uniform numbering system so that it'd be easier for spectators and organizers to know which car was which. So from 1963, you know, each team had the set of numbers. So you say, for instance, Lotus might have one and two and Ferrari might have three and four. And they'd hoped that organizers in other countries would follow suit. Um, but they did not do that until Zolder in 1973. Now, Jackie Stewart won the 1973 title, but who was the man that took the number one on the car in 1974, despite the new rules? Well, as you said, Jackie Stewart won his third and final world championship in 1973. Now we had numbers that were uniform from the beginning of 1974 onwards. And in the, in the absence of the reigning champion, coupled with the fact that Emerson Fittipaldi had moved away from the Constructors' Champion team, Lotus, it was Ronnie Peterson who wore number one in 1974, even though uh, he hadn't even won a Grand Prix until 1973 um, and wasn't yet, in fact, never would be a world champion. That wasn't the only time after the uniform adoption of, of numbers where a number one plate was worn by a driver who was not the world champion. There was one other instance, and that was in 1985 when Nicky Lauda in injured his wrist at Spa he missed the European Grand Prix at Brands Hatch and his place was taken by his former teammate, John Watson. And he drove Lauda's number one McLaren. That is the last instance to date where the, four, the number one car has been driven in a Formula One race by someone other than the reigning world champion. 
Right, let's look at the rules around car numbers. What are the rules when it comes to them and have they changed much over the years? There's been significant changes down the years. There's been a little bit more uniform in the past decade. Um, it used to be very arbitrary for the longest time. For instance, an example I often cite, Argentina 1972. That, year, that race, it was done in the alphabetical order of the constructor. So Jackie Stewart won that race driving car number 21, simply because the car, the Tyrrell, began with the letter T. It was later in the alphabet. Um, and from 1973 onwards, what would happen is the championship winning driver would swap numbers with the previous user of car number one. So for instance, in 1990, when Alain Prost moved from McLaren to Ferrari as the reigning champion. The two constructors there swap numbers, and that's why you see Ayrton Senna and Gerhard Berger using 27 and 28 for just that season only, because Senna regained the title in 1990. Previously, they were Ferrari's numbers, but then Senna won the title back, and Ferrari got those numbers back, which is also why, of course, um, 27 and 28, well, 27 particularly, uh, is synonymous with Ferrari, because they wore that number for such a long period in Grand Prix racing. Now, Sean, I'm re- I think I'm right in saying that car numbers can go all the way up to 99. What's the highest number to have appeared in Formula One? And, and second to that, to have won a Grand Prix? Well, the highest number to appear in Formula One actually didn't appear in the Grand Prix itself because it was a, a, a did not qualify. Lella Lombardi, the, uh, the, the female driver, the only female driver to have scored a point in Grand Prix racing, attempted to qualify at Brands Hatch 1974 British Grand Prix driving a car with the number 208. That's the highest number we've ever seen in Grand Prix racing. Now, why was it 208? That's such a random number. Well, that was actually the frequency of Radio Luxembourg, who was her sponsor for that race. So for that one race only, the number of the car was 208. Now, fortunately, it never qualified for the race, but it does go down in history as the highest number to have been entered into a Formula One race. As for winning a Grand Prix, we've got to go all the way back to the Nürburgring in 1952. Back in 52 and 53, the World Championship was organized to Formula 2 rules. And Alberto Ascari, in fact, Alberto Ascari won that race with car 101. But all of the cars in the race were allocated a three-figure number. So you were guaranteed a winner with a three-figure number in that particular race. And Alberto Ascari, as luck would have it, with the lowest number, 101, came out as the winner. And that is the highest winning race number in Grand Prix history. And are there any numbers that are completely excluded from being on a race car? Well, there is, of course, the retired number 17. After Jules Bianchi uh, crashed and suffered a fatal accident in, in 2014, um, that number was retired from racing, so we can't currently use that in the current uh, number setup. Also, historically speaking, number 13 was an unlucky number, or considered to be an unlucky number uh, in Western culture, and was generally avoided, never was used. So you'd have teams, you know, would have 11 and 12, and then the next team would have uh, 14 and 15. They'd just skip number 13. Completely, It was used once by Moises Solana, the Mexican driver, at his home Grand Prix in 1963, the very first championship Mexican Grand Prix. The only other driver to race car 13 was Pastor Maldonado. He chose it as his personal number in 2014 because it was considered a lucky number in Venezuela. If you look at a lot of Venezuelan baseball players, they love to play with number 13. So Pastor Maldonado chose that. He's the only driver... Um, in the current numbers era to pick that number. 
And while one obviously gets used by the reigning champion, we can even go before that. Zero has been used a few times, right? It has. I mean, it's very famous. Um, it's far more famous to have been, been used by Damon Hill in uh, 1993 and 1994, but it was, co it was coincidence, really, that he got to use that number for so long. The reason it came about was because at the end of 1992, Nigel Mansell was the world champion, Williams were the constructor champions. Mansell retired, did, went off to do IndyCar. In 1993, Alain Prost was given the choice, do you want to race car number two, or do you want to race car number zero? And Alan Prost said, no, thank you. I'd like to have car number two, please. So Damon Hill, who was coming in very much as a, sort of the, the lackey almost, uh, was handed car zero because it was decided that, you know, world, if you're not the world champion, you shouldn't have car number one. Alan Prost won the championship that year and then did exactly the same thing as Nigel Mansell, retired as the world champion. Damon Hill stayed on at Williams and was given the zero again in 1994. So um, it's an oddity. It wasn't, it wasn't Damon Hill's personal number, but he did become famous for using car zero. There was one other instance of using it, and that was in 1973. The last two races of 1973, McLaren's regular drivers, Denny Holm and Peter Rebson, uh, were joined by a third driver, the then uh, up-and-coming Jody Schechter, who years later would go on to be a world champion at Ferrari. And because all of the numbers had been allocated around the McLarens, he was given car zero. And that's the only other instance where car zero has ever appeared in a world championship event. And what are the lowest numbers to have never actually won a Grand Prix? Well, as I mentioned, car 13 is very seldom used in Grand Prix history. And Pastor Maldonado did not win a Grand Prix with that number. He did win a Grand Prix. He actually won where we were racing this past weekend at the Spanish Grand Prix in 2012. But it was using car 18 because that was under the previous numbering system from 1996 until the end of 2013, there was an order of merit system. So every year, the, uh, the numbers were allocated in the finish of the previous year's Constructors' Championship. It was decided after a while that the FIA wanted to change it, but the team started to object because they started to actually basically trade on having a low number. It, was, it had prestige having a low number, so they, they, they hung on to it. So in 2012, Pastor Maldonado won his race using car number 18, the Williams Renault. The lowest number other than that one to have never won a Grand Prix that's in regular circulation is 29. That number has never won a Grand Prix in World Championship history. And in fact, it has only been on the podium three times in 73 years. And they were all by the same driver, Ricardo Patrese driving the Arrows in 1980 and in 1981. So 29, a very unlucky number uh, if you happen to be a World Championship Formula One driver. Love it, Sean, love it. Well, let's leave it there for now. Fabulous chat as ever. My mind is once again a puddle after your statistical prowess blows it to smithereens, particularly being surrounded by so many holiday makers and people going about their business at Heathrow Airport. So well done for getting through it. And we've had a stat focus and a performance focus, so that leaves us with one focus to go, our Aramco focus, the area of the show where we shine a light on a subject you might not know too much about. Now, in previous episodes, we've heard all about Aramco's introduction of sustainable fuels into F2 and F3. And to round off this little mini-series, we're going to hear from a man who'll be familiar to many of you, Pat Simmons, former tech boss at Benetton and Renault, and now the chief technical officer of Formula One. Here's Pat talking about F1's fuel of the future. I'm Pat Simmons. I'm the chief technical officer of Formula One. 
in Formula One, we want to go to a fully sustainable fuel in 2026. Our colleagues in Formula Two and Formula Three are leading the way. And it's not the first time we've done this. We did it with the 18 inch wheels. We ran them in Formula Two before we brought them into Formula One. I think it's a great learning ground. It's a great experiment for us and it, it just paves the way for us to go further and further. Formula 2 and Formula 3 are, are not just training grounds for the drivers, they're training grounds for the technology as well. So by running these fuels in, in Formula 2 and the Formula 3 cars, we're going to learn, we're going to see ahead of time just what we need to do to adapt to these fuels. The answer, of course, is very, very little because these are drop-in fuels. But nevertheless, it's great to run them in Formula 2 and Formula 3. It shows us some of the nuances that we may not have to wait now until 2026 to find. These advanced fuels are absolutely critical, not just to the future of our sport, but to the future of our planet. We have a crisis. We now have to fix the problems. We have to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere. These fuels are a real step forward in doing that. We take the carbon out of the air, we use it, we put it back. They are really circular, they're fully sustainable. Now, we don't use a lot of fuel in, in our racing cars, a very small amount, but the technology that we're developing is absolutely applicable to the 1.4 billion vehicles that are on the road today. If we can start putting this type of fuel into those vehicles, then we really have made a contribution to reducing global warming. So that was Pat Simmons, Chief Technical Officer of Formula One, and we'll have another very special guest in our next episode. That's about it for today's show, but we'll be back with you again soon for more thought-provoking F1 chat. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one. Alex, what's next for you? Well, for me, it's straight out to France to uh, call the Le Mans 24 hours for a broadcaster and then back, of course, for all of the excitement of the summer and the British Grand Prix, which is the next one I'll be in the box for Formula 2 and Formula 3 for. Sounds good. And Sean, more travel? Uh, yes, uh, more travel this lunchtime, 11 hours to Southern California. And by the way, I want to thank everybody who's come out of the elevator that's been next to me for the last uh, 25 minutes or so. I salute each and every one of you, and I hope that you will be subscribing to this podcast henceforth. <laughs> Always the salesman. Thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Alex. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Sean. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.